This podcast has been sponsored by Investec. Their latest podcast is a four-part series on preparing for a post-pandemic world. The series on Investec Focus Radio features global experts discussing the changing world of work and the role of companies, as well as the shifting sands of geopolitics and the global investment landscape in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. The podcast features experts like Lesetia Kanyajo, David Rubenstein, Alanda Botton, Philip Hammond, and John Kay. You can listen to Investec Focus Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. I'm Renfrew Christie, born Johannesburg in 1949, so I'm very, very old. Every year in prison counts for three years, so I'm, if you add it up, I'm probably about 91. I was conscripted into the South African Army at the age of 17, and there I saw something that told me that the apartheid government was playing with nuclear weapons. So from the age of 17, I was hunting nuclear weapons. Renfu Christie is a white South African who spent years spying on the apartheid government's electricity program. The intel he developed would ultimately be used in the armed struggle to blow up power stations all around the country in the late 1970s and early 80s, including Cape Town's at that stage unfinished nuclear power plant, Kuburg. It was while making our last episode, which looked at how ready South Africa is to face various forms of disaster, including nuclear fallout, that we came across the incredible true story of the bombing of Kuburg in 1982. We're going to be telling that story over two episodes. In this week's show, we hear from the scholar who risked death by hanging to blow the whistle on the fact that the apartheid government was developing nuclear weapons. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. From a young age, Renfrew Christie was known to apartheid authorities as a troublemaker. He became involved in politics as a student and had been arrested on four occasions by the time he was 21, twice for being a white person in a so-called black area, once for protesting, and once for bringing an Alsatian called Henry to help protect Winnie Mandela because she was being attacked at night. Winnie Mandela would quite often come round to visit Renfrew's housemate, the Franciscan priest Cosmas Desmond, who helped expose apartheid living conditions for black South Africans internationally. So at the age of 22, Winnie Mandela was quite often cooking me lunch and teaching me ANC politics. Renfrew won a scholarship to Oxford just before his army regiment was due to invade Angola, which he describes as just-in-time planning. At Oxford, he would pursue his doctorate in politics, and when choosing his thesis topic, Renfrew spotted the opportunity to use his research to gather information for the ANC. 
In particular, he wanted to investigate his hunch that the apartheid government was building a nuclear armory. So Renfrew chose to write his doctoral thesis on a history of ESCOM. I designed it so that I could get into the Eskom archives and see how much electricity was being used to enrich uranium because the South African enrichment process needed huge amounts of electricity and I could calculate and tell the ANC how far the apartheid system had got towards building its own atom bombs. Nobody knew at the time what we know now that between the 1960s and the 1990s, South Africa was actively pursuing research into weapons of mass destruction. Renfrew's thesis effectively blew the whistle on what was to come. In it, he wrote, quote, South Africa has the equipment which is needed to produce a nuclear device, should it wish to do so. It was only in the 1990s that former President F.W. de Klerk would admit that Pretoria had built six nuclear bombs, with a further one under construction. Here's de Klerk in a 2012 interview, explaining the thinking behind the apartheid nuclear program. The strategy was, as it was explained to me when I was first briefed about it, we wanted never to use it, but we wanted to be a deterrent. We want other countries, we want the United States, we want Russia and so on to feel in all probability we have it. Although we would never admit to having it, we would like them to fear that we do have it and that we might be mad enough to use it. Under pressure from the West and the ANC, South Africa's nuclear bombs were confirmed to have been dismantled in 1994 by the International Atomic Energy Agency the IAEA. But Renfrew says there's much that's still unknown. The history is still covered in mud, and the IAEA, who did an assessment to prove that the bombs had been dismantled, didn't do a complete set of arithmetic on the fissile material. So the South African nuclear program is still covered in mud. They, as you probably know, built a three-stage missile supposedly to put peaceful satellites into space, but actually they were going to put a much smaller bomb than the ones they admitted to making on the tip of that. And that was an extremely great achievement of science. It was small, nimble, mobile, and basically could hit anywhere on Earth within uh, something like a three-meter central error probability. So if they wanted to hit a camel in the middle of the Sahara and they knew where the camel was, they could take out that camel within three meters of accuracy. I'm just not using cities as the examples. So they were a very advanced nuclear power. Renfrew's doctoral thesis didn't just provide predictions on South Africa's nuclear activities. It also allowed him a front to carry out in-depth research into the country's coal power stations and into Sassol, which produces oil from coal. Renfrew's handler within the ANC was Frené Genuala, who would go on to become the first speaker of the Democratic Parliament. It was Genuala to whom Renfrew would feed information which was ultimately used by the ANC's military wing, Mkonto Wesizwe, to blow up power stations, substations, and power lines around South Africa. 
To his knowledge, he says, no civilian died as a result of his spying, although one security guard was injured. But in 1979, Renfrew was caught and arrested, charged with supporting the violent overthrow of the apartheid government. On the morning of my trial, the Mkonto Wessies blew up Sassol very, very dramatically, all of the Sassol plants. And there were plumes of smoke going 150,000 feet into the air, looked almost like atom bombs. And Raymond Tucker, my wonderful lawyer, came into my cell earlier that morning with a color picture on the Rant Daily Mail front page and said, you're going to get at least 30 years. Renfrew's arrest made international news. White scientists may face death sentence, read the headline in Canada's Ottawa Citizen on June the 4th, 1980. Another report from the time wrote that 30-year-old scientist Renfrew Christie was described by a former teacher as one of the brightest prospects this country ever produced. When he was first detained, Renfrew was kept in solitary confinement for over seven months and subjected to torture. I had all the great torturers of the South African police, including Spaker van Beek. He got his nickname Spaker, which means nail, for hammering a nail through someone's foreskin. Not a terribly nice man. Using torture methods, Renfrew's captors succeeded in extracting a confession from him. But when the judge in his case read Renfrew's confession aloud in court as a way of demonizing him, the judge didn't realize that he was also broadcasting a blueprint of how to blow up the Kuburg nuclear power station. We'll be back after this. Investec has a new four-part podcast series on Investec Focus Radio which explores the changing world of work, investing, and geopolitics in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We didn't predict COVID-19, but we can prepare for its aftermath. Humankind didn't predict COVID-19, but we can prepare for its aftermath. I do not believe that all the retailers that have shut down will reopen. We are going to have to deal with some structural change. We have what I call the COVID crater. Those people that don't have tech resources or work in jobs that just are not going to be essential going forward. Insights from global experts on preparing for a post-pandemic world. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio South Africa wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Investec Focus Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. Renfrew Christie had confessed to supplying information to Mkonto Wesizwe, which could be used to help overthrow the apartheid government. But in his written confession, he managed to slip in all the details about how one could safely blow up the Kuburg nuclear power station. I confessed to what I had done and what my intentions were and why I had done it. And I could explain what would happen if Cuba were blown up, particularly if it were blown up in the way I suggested. And I wrote out the suggestions. And the point was to do it just before they loaded the uranium fuel so it wouldn't endanger the people of Cape Town. Two and a half years after the judge read out Renfrew's confession to the press, 
On the 18th of December 1982, Kuburg Nuclear Power Station was blown up by bombs planted by Rodney and Heather Wilkinson, who we'll be hearing from in next week's episode. Astounding where they get all the credit. But they seem to have used my recommendations that I put into my confession. Renfrew was sentenced to 10 years in prison, of which he served seven and a half. They held me in the hanging prison for two and a half years. And there were six prisoners and 60 warders. And they hanged people every Tuesday. So we were forced to listen to two to three hundred people being hanged. The effect of the Kuburg bombing can be quite precisely quantified because ESCOM was quite open about it at the time. There's an audited cost. In those years, the auditors were of Eskom were very, very honest. I have a sense it changed later. The auditors forced Eskom to put into their annual reports the cost of the rebuild after the bombing. And that was 519 million rand. The rand was equal to the dollar at the time, so it was 519 million dollars in 1982. If you add in Sassel and the other power stations, etc., I did some arithmetic once that the cost of everything that is in my doctoral thesis that was then bombed by the Unconto Wissizwe is over a billion dollars. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was two other guys and it fell off the back of a donkey. But I need to tell you that when I worked out in prison that that cost was $519 million. It made life in prison much, much easier. After Renfrew was released, he went on to help run South African universities, first the University of Cape Town, and then the University of the Western Cape, where he served as Dean of Research until his retirement in 2014. He's still busy. Until recently, he was a special advisor to Cabinet on the South African Defence Force, helping improve conditions for South African soldiers. In recent years, he was also drafted onto the Royal Society of Science. I was one of eight people who wrote the world rules for research integrity in science, which is obviously more and more important. I was probably selected because they understood that science in South Africa in the making of an atom bomb didn't have integrity. 38 years after the bombing of Kuburg, Renfrew still has strong feelings about matters related to nuclear power. One of the reasons for not having a nuclear power station is it's a force enhancer, force expander for an attack. And you don't have to use a cruise missile or an ICBM. You can walk explosives, you could walk a very small nuclear weapon into a nuclear power station. You can walk a nuclear weapon in on a donkey you can bring it across the Lesotho border on a donkey. We have not got out of the world nuclear crisis. We pretend it doesn't exist. But it is the easiest thing in the world to blow up whatever you like. Africa's supposed to be a nuclear-free zone. That's the funniest piece of stupid diplomacy I ever heard. There's no point in Africa that can't be bombed with a nuke within half an hour. You can bomb the dark side of the moon inside an hour or two. The entire planet is a target. 
but on that planet are the many thousand nuclear power stations and their targets. Another thing that Renfrew hasn't changed his mind about? That the decision to support the armed struggle against apartheid was the right thing to do. I was utterly convinced. At a very early age, I couldn't tell the difference between the National Party and the German Nazis. We're talking about the early 1950s. I couldn't see a difference between Forster and the Nazis. He'd been interned. And I realized early on that the only answer was war, armed struggle. My motive was I was fighting a war against a thoroughly evil system, an abominable system. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We love making this podcast, and ideally we'd like to keep making it until podcasts are replaced by a new kind of technology. But to do so, we really need your help. We ask you to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, not simply to boost our egos, though we love that too, but because reviews and ratings make it easier for other people to find us. Thanks again for your support.